Well, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, the great escape. You might think that uh, Steve McQueen or Clint Eastwood have the corner on these great stories, but you know when we open our Bibles, we have a number of stories of great escape. Have you thought about that? I mean, what's a closer call than Moses and the children of Israel backed up against the Red Sea, the cloud of dust from, chari- from the horses and chariots of Egypt's army and Pharaoh's army are upon them. They have nowhere to go, but they look up. And at the last minute, as God so specializes in, he provides what? A great escape. There's another great story that I love to reference, and that's in Second Chronicles chapter 20, and that's when Jehoshaphat was king of Jerusalem, and all the armies of, the, of Assyria were gathered against them to wipe them off the face of the earth. Not unlike some of the pledged enemies of Israel, even today, who would love to march them into the Mediterranean. And Jehoshaphat sees the assembling of the armies around him, and he knows he has no hope And so what does he do? He calls this great countrywide prayer meeting. Boys, girls, children, the priests, everyone gathers and they call upon the name of the Lord. And God does what? God provides the great escape. He turns the armies inward against themselves in confusion. They wipe one another out and Israel is saved at the last minute. There's many stories that we enjoy like that in the Bible. As I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 8 this morning, as we continue uh, to move now through the conclusion of the great flood and Noah's story and account, where God has judged the earth with this great worldwide flood, I want you in your mind this morning to think carefully with me, as we kind of just have, we have the the conclusion of the flood story in chapter 8, We have the reestablishment beginning now in chapter 9, we'll we'll not hit 9 yet this morning, of the earth being now kind of a restart. But I want you to think in terms of what we've just studied in chapters 6 and 7 of Genesis as maybe in a way the ultimate great escape. What an incredible, incredible story we have been studying. Before we dig into chapter 8... Let's take our Bibles and flip over to chapter 1 and let's just remind ourselves as we work our way through Genesis, it's been a number of weeks since we've reminded ourselves sort of of this Bible walkthrough concept. Let's get it in our minds. Remember chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis in our studies is all about what? Creation. Will you say that with me? Creation. Chapters 1 and 2, say it. Creation. Then when we move to chapter 3, we have the tragic fall, the disobedience. We could really entitle that chapter disobedience, couldn't we? Sin enters the world, but let's capture that in one theological term, and it's just fall. So chapter 1 and 2 is? Chapter 3 is? Fall. And man enters into sin. His relationship with God is broken. It doesn't take long for sin to take root. And when we get to chapter 4, we have... Really, the story of Cain and Abel, and let's just capture the chaos of what sin does to families and to society with the word murder. Murder. Chapter 4, murder. Chapter 1 and 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Let's just use this word, and I'll try to remember to use the same words. I keep changing them on you. 
chapter 5. I was trying to capture that. You know, that's the great chapter of the genealogies of Seth, basically, is what Bible students call that chapter. Chapter 4 was the genealogies of Cain. Chapter 5, the genealogy of Seth. And that's the chapter where you have just those astounding and remarkable uh, records of long life. Remember Methuselah and guys like 600 years, 700 years, 800 years. All these huge lifespans. And so let's just capture that and put it in our minds so that when we think through our Bibles, we can think, chapter 5, that's the long life chapter. So just think long life, okay? And what's happening is the earth is being populated. Think about all the children that they had, right? And so chapter 5 is all about long life and the establishment of the population of the earth. Chapters 1 and 2 is? Chapter 3 is? Chapter 4 is? Chapter 5 is? Long life. Yes, long life. And then chapters 6, 7, and 8, those three chapters together are all about, just say the word flood. Flood. Chapters 6, 7, and 8, say it. Flood. Okay, one more time. Chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. Chapter 6, 7, and 8. Flood. And why did the flood come? Because after the earth was populated, what happened to man in his sin? He began to disregard God, right? And now we have chapter 8. We've spent several weeks asking ourselves some questions uh, more from the world of science there. Um, when you read chapters uh, 6 and 7 and then chapter 8, and then we'll begin to move on in the genealogies of Noah and the earth will be repopulated, that raised all kinds of questions because we never encountered dinosaurs and fossils and cavemen in the Ice Age. And so we took time to try to just touch on some of those subjects in a little way for some of you who have never uh, understood the ramifications of the flood and the climactic change that took place. And in chapter 8, you can see that even as God dries up the earth, He evidently used some natural means and maybe some supernatural means for all this water to evaporate. You have probably the sinking of, of, you had the fountains of the deep breaking forth for the great flood, remember? And the heavens let loose all of the rain that was stored up in them with this what uh, Bible scholars believe was some kind of a great vapor canopy. And so all the rain let loose, the fountains of the deep broke forth in, in volcanic and geyser water-like activity. And so you, you more than likely, the, the creation, biblical creationist theory is that at this point, the oceans got much deeper, uh, the land shifted, and the mountains shoved up as, as the pressure that was within the earth released. You had the, the deepening of oceans, you had the upthrust of the lava rock and the sedimentary rock and the, and the upheaval of the crust of the earth. And great changes took place at this time. Let's read Genesis chapter 8. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. And we're just going to read the chapter. We want to go back then and revisit the chapter and understand what's there because it's basically just telling now what happens after the flood waters are stopped. And then I want us to talk about what Noah must have been thinking and how that relates to us as Noah represents in many ways the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a type of Christ. And the ark is a type in a sense, in a sense as Peter says in the New Testament, of our salvation. Let's put it in perspective. Let's just read chapter 8 and then let's draw from this some lessons about one of the greatest escapes of all time. 
Genesis chapter 8. We'll read it in its entirety. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. Let's actually pick up verse 24 of chapter 7. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. That would be five months. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of the hundred and fifty days the water had gone down, and on the seventeenth day of the seventh month the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountain became visible. After forty days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and he took the dove and he brought it back to himself in the ark. And he waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. And he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. And Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then God said to Noah, and can you imagine these words on that day? Come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil all the time, is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done." As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And so we have Noah now back on dry ground. Well, what a remarkable story. We've talked about it for a number of weeks. We've recognized that it's not a children's story, that it's really a horrible story of God's wrath. It's really a story that should remind us of the fact that God is a righteous judge and that God does not let sin go unpunished and that one of the great spiritual laws of the universe is this, that the wages of sin is death and it never fails. You cannot circumvent it. You cannot get around it. It's also, though, a great story about God's grace, isn't it? How God didn't just say, Zappo, Bambo, and you're dead. 
But God let a man preach for 120 years. And God called people unto Himself for 120 years through His righteous preacher Noah. And God had a door and that you could enter through this door. You could come freely and by faith believe that what God said was true and that the day of judgment was coming and you could enter the door and you could escape it all. When it was all said and done, the door was pretty narrow, wasn't it? Because a father and a mother and three sons and their wives were the only ones who had the faith to enter the ark before God shut the door. You know, you stop and think about it. If you were a neighbor, got up, got your coffee, got your USA Today version, whatever it is over that part of the country at that day, and you happened to glance out the window and before you sat down and you said, Mabel, come look at this. And you see all the animals coming. Don't you think at that point you'd at least got on just in case? I don't think they ever saw anything like that in the whole neighborhood. What do you think? And what a picture of the rebellious nature of a sinful heart. We have some great escape stories that remind us of this even further in Old Testament. Remember when the serpents went throughout the camp of Israel because of their sin and disobedience? And on that day, thousands of people were poisoned to death by the vipers. And God said, and Moses prayed to God, said, spare us. God said, put together a bronze snake, a serpent, put it up on a pole, and all they have to do is look and live. And people refused to turn their eyes and see, and they died. And you're watching the zebras and the giraffes and the grizzly bears get on the ark, and you won't go say at the last minute, I think they're all in, I'm going to go run and jump on there, and I can always let myself over on a rope at the last minute. No, in the hardness of their hearts and the futility of their thinking, they refused to admit that what they saw was truth. Had to be some tugging going on in their gut, don't you think? Well, let's just break down and, and let's just kind of see the story here in chapter 8 and remind ourselves a little bit of what's happening and, and then let's make some important applications to our own lives today about the ultimate great escape opportunity. First of all, in verse 1, we see that God remembers. God remembers. A lot of people don't like that little phrase because it makes them think that God must have forgot. Look what it says. The water was flooded the earth for 150 days, five months. The, the fountains of the deep broke and the rain came for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it was just chaos for five months before anything began to recede at all. And then it says, but God remembered Noah and all the animals, everyone within the earth, in the ark. For us, in the English language, when we hear God remembers, we think, oh, that means you thought of something that you knew before, but you kind of forgot about. In the, in the Hebrew mind, the Hebraic understanding of this is, is simply this, and this is a repeated phrase in describing God, it wasn't that he forgot. Of course he didn't forget. God can't forget. The only thing he can forget in the Bible is what, by the way? He remembers it no more by his grace. Amen? Whew. I'm glad. Whew. Got some sin I really want him to forget. And by the blood of Christ, he forgets. The, the Hebraic usage of this would be that it is to act upon a previous commitment to a covenant partner. 
It is this. I made an agreement with you. I have not forgotten it. And now it's time to act upon that agreement. In that sense, God remembers what he's doing. He never forgot, but the time had come for him to act upon the agreement that he made, the covenant action. Verses 2 and 3, we see that God sends a wind at the end of verse 1 and verses 2 and 3. The springs and the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed. The rain had stopped falling from the sky. Like I said, the biblical creationist theory is at this time, there was a settling of sediment. This is a time when you've got this great upheaval. You've got massive amounts of water. You've got massive amounts of sludge and mud and rock and stuff all intermingled. You've got thousands, you've got the carnage of all these dead animals and all the plant life of the surface of the earth. And that's why even today you can go and you can destroy the evolutionist uh, paleontological chart because there's trees that are standing upright all through the strata of the fossil layer, of the frozen rock layers. You've got the sediment, the mud, the water, everything comes together. It's why you have seashells on the top of mountains. The whole earth at one time, everywhere you go around the face of the globe, you see evidence that the earth was covered in water at one point. Totally fits the biblical description. So number one, we have God, God remembers. Number two, we have the water recedes. The flood had lasted essentially 150 days and now at this point it starts to go down. Noah and his family are still on the ark. Certainly, it had to be a great relief just think about this. They're laying in bed. Had their little apartment there in the ark. And, and the sound changed. And no doubt it was a calming sound, but then, then they had what we had this weekend. This great wind that began to blow. And I, I imagine that the wind caused huge currents and great wave reaction, and that big old boat is just moving and Evidently, there was air vent around the top. You see later that Noah puts back the roof. So evidently, they kept they had some kind of a shelter from all that rain, either a large eave where he left it. Remember, he left one cubit open around the top. Evidently, there was a great eave that covered it and, or shutters of some kind. They had to have some kind of air ventilation that went throughout the boat that came in. And he'd take walks around the upper deck. Can't imagine he didn't. And the wind is just blowing but it's a changed sound. The whole earth doesn't rumble anymore. And the wind is blowing. And the water begins to recede. Number three, in verse four, we see that the ark rests. The ark rests. Isn't that an interesting expression? Look what it says. Verse three again, the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And then notice, on the 17th day of the 17th month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and how must that have felt? I've never been on a cruise. I asked Janet this week, it was kind of a rhetorical question. I don't know that there will ever be any action on it, but I said, would you ever like to go on a cruise? Just seeking her opinion, you know. Well, I don't know. I've never been on one. I've never really done much. I've been on fishing boats and things, but imagine this great vessel, this huge barge weighted down, Moving, and then all of a sudden, uh, uh. when you stop, you know it. I remember one time I was in a, a, a fishing boat up on the Yukon where I used to work up on the Yukon in the summertime. So I was in college, just story just came to my mind, and we had a, a 55 horse 
outboard motor on that thing, and it was heading down the river wide open. And I hit a mud flat in the, in the Yukon. Couldn't, I didn't see it. There's mud that comes up, and my boat just, bam, it just stopped. Almost, you needed seatbelts. When you're not floating anymore in a boat, you know it. I wonder if this is like in the middle of the night, and they're sleeping, and all of a sudden, yeah. You got it. I love vivid imagination when I'm preaching. See, that's why I don't use the screens, because what's going on in the mind is even better. Good job, Aaron. You're sound asleep, and all of a sudden, can you see Noah standing up in bed? What's the... And it just came to rest. No one knows for sure where this is. It says the mountains of Ararat. They speculate that it would be somewhere in southern Turkey today where Mount Ararat is. Somewhere in those mountains. This mount, the mountain of Ararat today is the tallest mountain there. It's 17,000 feet high. There's also been, as you know, lots of speculation. There's been book writ- books written. There's been expeditions. There's been Discovery Channel specials on people who've tried to find the ark and they've never quite been able to nail it down. There does appear to be a spot where there seems to be a large vessel, wooden, a wooden structure frozen in the ice up there in the mountains. It could be. It could very well be. For some reason, God has not allowed it to happen. I've often wondered if, if there would be a time with the greater advancements of technology that we have and some of the machinery that we have, if somehow as a last day's testimony, do you know how Peter in Second Peter 3, and we've referenced it often, is a reminder to us that God doesn't, that in days of old they didn't think God would flood the earth and then in days future they'll say, oh, it's, nothing's ever going to change. There's never going to be a judgment from God and that God is going to send fire the next time to destroy the face of the earth. And I've wondered if at the last minute, if God in His grace, giving one more shout out, come on, if you want to be part of the great escape, if we won't all watch on the news and see Noah's Ark get uncovered as a testimony. But for now, he hasn't done it. It's not there. I mean, it may be there, but nobody knows for sure if it's there. God remembers the water recedes, the ark rests. Notice then the earth's renewal. The earth's renewal. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The water, verse 5, continued to recede. Till the 10th month, the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opens the window. And then you have the unclean bird. The raven flies out and it had evidently floating carcasses and things that it could uh, respond to. And, and uh, it's, it's an unclean bird. But then verse 9, the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark kind of Noah's little scientific experiment going on there. And he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. That's a familiar picture, isn't it? Artists have rendered that over and over in lots of ways. Oh, Noah leaning over the railing of the ark and the dove coming in to rest on his hand. But then look what happens. When the dove returned from him, verse 11, in the evening there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So you have to understand, at this point, they're still living in the ark. It has come to rest. They don't look out a whole lot, I don't think. Evidently some. I take it that the sun is shining, the wind is blowing. And by the way, this is what I referenced last week. All of this water with the natural wind blowing and the sun beating down creates what? It creates great 
vapor and moisture content to the atmosphere, which later, along with volcanic ash in the air and so forth, biblicist, uh, Bible scientists believe that it sets up the perfect opportunity for one great ice age. And that starting from the polar cap regions, it moved down and that about a third of North America even was covered with ice, as the evidence shows. And that it was from all this moisture that was in the air and so forth. Um, not a, you know you can't prove how it happened exactly, but it's a good theory. And certainly, an ice age needed tremendous moisture in the atmosphere to happen. So the dove comes back with the olive leaf freshly plucked. What does that show? A sign of life. Plant life is reestablishing. The earth is coming back after all this chaos. And so then Noah know that the then Noah know then Noah knew. <laughs> then Noah knew that, verse 11, that the water had receded from the earth and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again and look, this time it did not return. It could find enough habitat to live. No need to return. And by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. And then Noah removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Now, there's a Hebrew word for dry, and uh, in the NIV, they amplified on it and, and because it's a different Hebrew word that's used. Notice here at the end of verse 13, the surface of the ground was dry. And then by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. So back up in verse 13, the water had dried up from the earth and then the surface of the ground was dry. And by then, it was completely dry. Well, what was it? Well, it was drying up. And can't you see him saying, hey, the earth is dry. There's hardly no water left, but if you got out, you'd sink in up to your knees in the muck, right? But compared to the flood, it was drying up. And then the surface began to stabilize, and then the time had come where it was completely dry. That is, you could now sustain living on the face of the earth again. Things had stabilized, and, and the earth's surface was dry. And then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. Wow. Hallelujah. <laughs> Finally. What do you think Noah's wife was thinking? Noah's daughter-in-laws. We finally get out. We have a picture of the earth's renewal then. Look, so Noah came out together with his sons, verse 18, his wife and his sons' wives. What a day that had to have been. All the animals and all the creatures that moved along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Before I forget, let me comment at least that I think it's significant that God said to Noah, verse 16, come out of the ark. And then verse 18, Noah came out. Notice that Noah didn't force God's hand here, that Noah waited on the Lord. God told him when to go in the ark, and God told him when to come out of the ark. And what a picture of the obedience of this humble servant. I don't know about you, I'd have probably had me some kind of a ladder down the side. I'd have been going out there, my waiters, just checking things out. Noah, now's the day to get out. In humble obedience to the Lord, he reacts. What a servant he was. And you have here what I'm just going to characterize as the earth's renewal, number four, the earth's renewal. You have the repopulation of the earth, and, and many creation scientists believe that it was probably very rapid repopulation of the earth. Why? Because probably there was a great surge of vegetation, um, that vegetation restored rapidly, that the animals did not have predators at first at this point. Chapter 9 is going to talk about that a little bit more, the change 
And he gives, we'll talk about chapter 9 when we get there. But there, and then these animals had lots of room to spread out and that there was probably a rapid repopulation of the earth. Some of you that want a model of what could have happened here is I reference Mount St. Helens. I haven't talked a lot about that. They have some wonderful material about Mount St. Helens and the volcano that, that erupted and then the restoration, even the canyons that were formed, the action of the lava and the water and what it did and how the projection by scientists was just horrible for that area and then how it has far surpassed all ec- explanation and expectation of the renewal and the restoration of vegetation and trees and animal life and how the elk have come back and everything's healthy, how, how quickly things have responded. The Lord made the earth really virile. The Lord made the earth really capable of renewal. Then the Lord, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, verse 20, and we have Noah's Rejoicing, Noah rejoices. The, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. We still have Adam's mark of sin, don't we? Chapter 3 of Genesis. Man hasn't changed in his essence, in his being, but man has a new chance to respond to the instruction and the revelation of God. We're going to see how quickly his heart can turn away. And then we have the seasons regulated, number six. As long as the earth endures, this verse right here in and of itself destroys the theory that the earth can warm up so much that it will destroy life on the earth. It cannot happen based upon the declaration of Almighty God. Here it is. Don't believe for a second that global warming is going to put us into extinction. It cannot do it until God says it's time. Notice this verse. It's 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease And God establishes the seasons and God establishes the the atmosphere as we know it to react and to wane and to move and the earth on its axis in response to the other planets and the sun as we move around the sun and so forth. And there it is. And we also know from other parts of our Bible that God has a plan for people and God has a plan for the earth and that man will not destroy himself. He cannot because God is in control, not man. So there we have chapter 8. God remembers holds up his end of the bargain, and secondly, the water recedes, the ark rests, the earth's renewal is clear, and then Noah rejoices, and then the seasons regulate. And we have now this settling, and we can kind of go, okay, let's get on with life now. The flood is over. Before we move on and we talk about civil government being established, and we've got to talk about some important subjects coming up in chapter 9, like the death penalty and so forth, very relevant for today. Let's conclude our time today and and let's just step back from the story now and let's just ask ourselves what we've seen here, what has really happened. Let's just kind of wrap this up because I believe that our familiarity with this story can be one of our greatest obstacles in getting the main point out of the story. Oh, I know all about the flood. I know that story since I was a kid. Can't miss it. I'd like to just remind us about what a picture of the great escape this is and 
And what a picture of how the flood story and Noah and the ark paint a beautiful picture of Christ and how he rescues men. Even in the phrase, the ark rests. Peter referenced that the ark was a place of refuge and shelter and salvation. And what did our Lord Jesus Christ do after his work at the cross, after his death, after his burial? Forty days later, he ascended to the Father, and then what did he do? He sat down at the, end of, at, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and in, in essence, he rested. And the ark rested. It had accomplished its job. Salvation had occurred. It was over. The ark is a picture, in essence, of our salvation. And notice what Noah did when he came out of the ark. The first thing he did is he worshipped. He rejoiced. What did Noah understand now at a level that he had never understood before? That God means what he says? That God is a holy and a righteous God? And that God will only tolerate sin for so long? But in the middle of all that, God and His grace will provide an escape, a release from this sin and a release from that judgment. All you have to do is in faith believe God and move according to His instruction. And so Noah makes this sacrifice and it comes up as a beautiful a beautiful offering before the Lord. And Noah humbles his heart before the Lord. I'd like to just list off some bullet point parallels here. You see, our sin problem is still the same today as the sin problem of Noah's day, isn't it? And do you remember if you flip back to chapter nine, chapter 6, verse 9, actually look up at verse 6 of chapter 6, it says that the Lord was even grieved that he'd made man. In verse 5 it says, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And he said, I'll wipe man off from the face of the earth. But then verse 9 says, and this is the account of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, a just man, blameless among the people of his time. Because why? Because he walked with God. I expect that people back then are just like people today. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus even uses this time frame as a reminder of how it'll be at the end of the age. People will be going about their everyday lives. It says here, every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. And we know things were bad. And you could even characterize our culture and society like that today, couldn't you? If you watch the news, if you watch MSNBC, if you watch your computer screen, if you watch the headlines of the papers, you could just step back and just say, I've got to quit reading that stuff because everything is evil all the time. But even in the middle of that, there's all kinds of people who aren't so evil necessarily. But what is it? They don't walk with God. And in a way, you could almost build a case for the fact that the, that the most heinous sin of all is to know that there's a God and to know that He created you and to know that He loves you and then just ignore Him and go your own way. It's the ultimate act of idolatry, isn't it? To say, I'm in charge of my life and I don't need you. And God says, I'll not tolerate this forever. But Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man. Think about this. First of all, a parallel to Noah's day and then a parallel to the sin and the promised coming judgment of sin today. So the New Testament is clear that the wages of sin is death. The New Testament is very clear that there's a day coming. No, he won't destroy the earth by water, but Second Peter 3 makes it clear that he'll destroy it by fire. And he'll only put up with the scoffers and the mocking for so long. The book of Revelation goes into clear detail 
on the coming judgment and wrath of God to the degree that even hailstones, hundred-pound hailstorm stones and fire will fall from the sky. Earthquakes, a third of the earth will be scorched. What's going to happen? God's judgment is coming. We don't have to live in fear this morning and we can take Noah's story and we can learn about the great escape. First bullet point, the escape was provided by God. When you sit back and you look at the story and you look at what we've just seen, first of all, recognize that the escape is provided by God. For God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to do what? But to save the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Listen, when God was ready to condemn the earth and God was ready to condemn the world, He's the one who had a plan. He's the one who spoke to Noah and said, build an ark and make it this dimension. Here's my plan. And on the side of the ark was His door. I want you to notice second bullet point, there was only one escape hatch. I want you to know that with the coming judgment of God in the flood, just like the coming of judgment of God at the end of the age, you've got to recognize there's not multiple ways out. We don't live under a system where there's multiple facets of truth. Truth is exclusive by definition. All world religions cannot be right. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except by me, he meant what he said. Just like when God lowered, when Noah manufactured the door with a hinge on it, and there was a a boarding ramp, and the opportunity was there, particularly in the last seven days as the animals came on, and God said, in seven more days, and I imagine Noah let the word out, seven more days, here's the door. Say, no, don't worry about it, no. I'm okay, man. You see, I got it worked out. You see, me and God, we got this understanding. You see, the way I figure it works is, where are you getting that stuff? You're making it up. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Let me tell you something. There is only one door. We used to sing about this in Sunday school. Do you know that one? One door and only one. That's the revelation door, I think. And yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? You better figure out which side of the door, whether it's the Revelation 20 door, whether it's the... The escape was provided by God. There is only one escape hatch, one door only. The escape plan, though, was available to all. There was no exemptions. Have you noticed that about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Come unto me, Jesus said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let me become sin for you, my child. I'll go to the cross and I'll be your substitute and I'll do it for you and you and you and you and not you and you and you. No, no. The escape plan was available to all. But next, the escape was disregarded by most, wasn't it? The escape was disregarded by most. Notice also now that there was a limited time to respond to the escape opportunity. There was a limited time It seemed like a long time. 120 years Noah preached. 
I hope you don't make the mistake that a lot of people make of saying, you know, I got a lot of living anatomy. And I really, you know, I'm pretty sure, I, I know a God, and I'm going to make sure, but I'm going to wait until the last minute. That's so foolish. See, you just don't know what the future holds. You don't know the next moment, do you? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, that we're not to wait The escape was disregarded by most. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. There was a limited time to respond. You don't know what day it is in your life according to God's book. Notice then that the escape was facilitated by one humble servant. That's Noah as a type of Christ, isn't it? I want to escape. How am I going to get out of here? I'm going to go talk to Noah. The smartest thing that anybody could have done of that day, at the end of the story looking back, is that I should have gone to Noah and asked him what was going on and done whatever Noah said. Remember how Jesus said, a prophet's without honor in his own country? Remember how Jesus went around his own neighborhoods and he proclaimed truth? He opened up the scroll of Isaiah and he said, Today... This prophecy is fulfilled in your presence. They had, the, they had the Son of God in their presence, and what did they do? Let's take him and throw him off a cliff! Can't stand this guy! And the truth is right there in front of them. The escape was facilitated by one humble servant in the flood, and the escape today, my friend, is facilitated by one humble servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you turn with me to 1 Timothy for a couple verses? 1 Timothy... And notice these verses. 1 Timothy 1.15 The Apostle Paul instructs Timothy to tell the churches, Here is a trustworthy saying, and it deserves, notice the next phrase, My friend, listen to me. If you're a skeptic or if you're outside of Christ today, I beg you to listen to the Word of God now in the next five minutes as you have never listened before. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes to young Timothy, giving clear instruction to the churches, that here is a trustworthy saying, 1 Timothy 1.15, that deserves full acceptance. Listen, do not question this. Accept it fully today, my friend. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Apostle Paul is so humbled by this, he says, I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. My friend, that's the key. Because you cannot look at me now and say, Pastor Van, you don't know how bad I've been. I'm too bad for God to save. No, you're not. The Apostle Paul already has that spot. He was the worst of sinners and God saved him. You're only, the only place you can get to is the second of worst of sinners. You're in second place, friend. Second place, second place is the first loser. You ever heard that one? You don't have to be a loser. You can have that sin wiped away. Notice chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 of this same book. He's urging us to pray for all 
in authority and so forth, verses 1 and 2. Then look at verse 3 of 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, and I am telling the truth and I am not lying, and a teacher of the truth, of the true faith, to the Gentiles. In other words, this gospel is for all people everywhere. And I was appointed, the Apostle Paul says, to proclaim it. There is only one way, there is only one humble servant who facilitated our rescue. I want you to see that in the day of the flood and even in today's day, in the flood day, there was a sense of urgency that the watching world never comprehended. There was a sense of urgency that a watching world never comprehended. I don't think Noah got behind a pulpit very often. I don't think Noah built a church. I don't think he advertised for people to come into his evangelistic rallies. I think he was up on a scaffold with a saw and a hammer in his hand, and he was working on this boat. And as people would walk by, they would shout up at him and say, Hey, man, what are you doing? And he would put down his tools. He'd say, Boys, keep working. I've got to talk here a minute. You need to understand. You need to understand that it's going to rain and you don't have forever and you need to be ready to come in that door down there. It's the only door. And you need to live with a sense of urgency because one day the door's going to close and then it'll be too late. You crazy old man. You hear that guy and off they go. There was a sense of urgency that a watching world never comprehended and my friend today my fear is that you're part of a watching world that just doesn't get it God is calling you to himself today finally I want you to see that as in the day of Noah as in the end times here that the consequences of the consequence of not escaping was devastating say I just don't think it matters wonder but the young 19, 20-year-old punks who were the strongest, who finally were treading water and are trying to hold on to dead logs in the flood, before their nose finally went under in the flood, if you'd have said to them, hey, buddy, do you wish you could get in the door now? I didn't know that the consequences would be so great. It's like the Luke 16 passage that we said last week, right? Abraham! Just send somebody back from here to tell my five brothers not to come here. Buddy, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even listen to somebody who rose from the dead. And we already have the prophet who rose from the dead, and they despise him. His name is Jesus. The escape was provided by God, my friend. There was only one escape hatch, one door and only one. The escape plan was available to all, but the escape was disregarded by most. There was limited time to respond. The escape was facilitated by one humble servant. There was a sense of urgency that a watching world never comprehended, and the consequences of disregarding the escape hatch are devastating. Where are you today, my friend? Have you gone through the door? Are you on the ark? Not Noah's ark. Are you on the spiritual ark of God's salvation that will carry us home now amid the flood of sin and evil? You're either on the ark or you're not on the ark. Will you get on the ark today? 
Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? I might be preaching to a room full of people who are on the ark. I don't know. But my responsibility is to stop and tell you there's only one door. It's Jesus Christ. And through Christ, he wants all to come unto salvation. And here's how you do it. You acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ by admitting your sinfulness. You see, just like in that day of old, they didn't think they were a sinner worthy of judgment or they would have got on the ark. You've got to humble your heart, admit your sin, and believe that Jesus Christ alone is that door. Jesus himself in John's gospel, one of seven metaphors about himself, I am the door, Jesus said. I'm the door. Go to the doorkeeper today, will you? And say, I need in that door. I want on the ark. I want to miss the flood. I don't want to take any chances here. I'll humble my heart. And I'll believe the humble servant who brought this message, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and reached out to a lost and dying world. Let's bow our heads, please. Today, as we conclude with a song, it's a a hymn of invitation for you to come to Jesus. And I invite you to get out of your chair. We're going to stand. We'll tell you exactly what we're going to do. We don't do this every service, but... My heart is concerned that you have a chance to get on the ark today. Get out of your chair. Come forward. And kneel right here at the steps. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he paid the price for your sin, and that you do not have to suffer the eternal consequences of your sin. We know the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God happy to have a counselor meet with you in a side room and further open the scriptures and show you God's plan of salvation for getting through the door. Come to the doorkeeper today, will you? And tell Jesus as we sing, Jesus, I come today. I urge you, pound a stake in the ground today. Make today the day you get on the ark if you're not already there. Father, convict us, compel us, Encourage us that we would not miss the moment of salvation today. We would cry out from hungry hearts and humble hearts and admit our sinfulness. And thank you that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, draw people to yourself today. Through the Holy Spirit, convict, make clear that they can't stand themselves until they're sure they're saved and will be on the ark of eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray.